Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Notorious gangsters are synonymous with the cities they called home. In Chicago, Al Capone. Las Vegas, Bugsy Malone. In New York City, John Gotti. In Cleveland, in the 1970s, a guy named John Nardi wanted to be on top. Nardi's a well-connected gangster in the Cleveland underworld. He's into the usual gangster stuff, bookmaking, loan shocking, extortion, protection rackets. He's a mob associate with hopes of becoming a made man, being inducted into the crime family. Jerry Capisi has been writing about gangsters and organized crime since the 1980s. While Nardi was a gangster, Jerry says he was not part of the Cleveland crime family. He's what wise guys would call an earner. He makes money and he pays tribute to crime family mobsters for their protection. Nardi is beginning to grow his power base in Cleveland, but he's also getting himself into money trouble. Uh, He's a heavy gambler, and this leads him into some more risky endeavors like major drug dealing, you know, as he looks to get a bigger slice of the rackets. Around the same time, in May of 1976, John Scalish, the longtime Cleveland mob boss, dies. Nardi feels he's earned the right to become the new leader. You know, that's a real pie-in-the-sky idea. And he begins to see more power and a bigger slice of the pie. He begins forming alliances with other gangsters, you know, who, like him, are outside the mob's inner circle and earning less money and respect. One of those gangsters is Danny Green. Danny Green, like uh, him, is an independent, violent gangster. Uh, He's a loose cannon, just like Nardi. He refuses to bow down to the new mafia administration. And Green doesn't just refuse to bow down to the new mafia administration. He goes to war with them. Green's men kidnap and kill the Cleveland family underboss. This guy, the underboss, is second in command. And he's also the cousin of the new de facto mob boss, the one Green and Nardi want to unseat. You know, a deadly shooting war begins. Bombings. These bombings become almost a regular occurrence in Cleveland in 1976, and were recreated in a Hollywood film called Kill the Irishman. Most of the bombings are done by remote control. The outsiders bomb the mob guys in power. The mob guys bomb them back, back and forth, back and forth, in this massive struggle for control of the Cleveland mob. Then, one afternoon, in May of 1977, John Nardi is walking to his car. They push the button. He's blown up. Uh, He dies soon after. And his rebellion certainly it turns out to be a very bad idea. John Nardi, for three decades a prominent member of Cleveland's crime syndicates, was killed today by a bomb rigged to the ignition of his car. Nardi's murder brings the number of organized crime figures slain in Cleveland this year to four. Soon after his death, the Cleveland Mafia is broken up. But there's a little-known side story to Nardi's murder. After he died his widow filled out an application for help from the state of Ohio from a pool of money called a Victim's Compensation Fund. It provides victims of crime and their families with money for things like medical expenses, lost wages, and funeral expenses. Every state has a fund like it. John Nardi's widow ended up collecting $50,000 from Ohio's fund, and voters there were furious. How could a known mob family end up getting all that money from the state? In 1982, state lawmakers banned people who had felony convictions from being able to use the fund. 
But it's not just people with convictions. Since Nardi had never been convicted, lawmakers also banned people with a preponderance of evidence that they may have committed a crime. This law has had a lot of unintended consequences. And it has to do with the concept of who's a victim and who gets to decide. That's what we're exploring on today's show. We start with our partners, The Marshall Project. Their reporter, Alicia Santo, has been investigating victim compensation funds for more than a year. And what she found is that not all victims are treated equally. She and producer Kate Osborne get started in Ohio. It's Wednesday in May, and the sun is shining in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's the kind of spring day where you wish you didn't have to go to work or to school, that you could just sit on your porch. But today, Kate and I are going to spend the morning at a funeral home. J.C. Battle and Sons Funeral Home. Great. An immaculate three-story house on this quiet block. Hello. Hi there. Come right in. Are you JC? I'm Lynn Wood. Oh, hi. Hi. JC Battle and Sons has been in business since 1933. Linwood and JC are the third generation of battles to run the place. Linwood says this job is more of a calling. We are committed to taking care of families in the absolute worst day of their lives. That means counseling families through their grief, all the paperwork, and the cost. For customers who are struggling, the brothers offer the battle special. You have choice of four metal caskets. That's $32.95. $32.95. About half of what a funeral normally costs. That's still a lot of money for many families who are sometimes dealing with a sudden loss. Then we find out that he was a victim of crime. They say, oh, well, you might be qualified to um, receive some compensation back from the state. Out of the Victim Compensation Fund. Every state has a Victim Compensation Fund, and most of the money comes from court fees, not taxes. But a lot of people don't know this money is out there. I didn't before I started working on this story. Sometimes people find out from their funeral directors. That's what happened with Carl and Darlene Givens. The couple lives just 15 minutes west of J.C. Battle and Sons, in an area of Cincinnati called Price Hill. We just had an anniversary on May the 15th, and it'll be 31 years. Congratulations. (laughs) Carl is in his 70s with a young face. He's 19 years older than Darlene. She's petite, with tired eyes, but deep smile lines. And her face can beam with light when she's talking about her son, Jamar, who they lost in 2016. Throughout his growing up, children were always in our home because of Jamar. Every day, he brings someone to the door and asks us to clothe them or feed them, which we did. Yeah, you know, to add to that, uh, he was loved by so many people. I used to wonder one thing that uh, Jamal, I asked him, I said, Jamal, how could you relate to so many different people? Everybody knew Jamal. Jamar lived with his parents and brother, Krishan, all in a single-family house on the corner of a busy intersection. Carl and Darlene always worried about their boys. Darlene says she had a bad feeling about certain parts of their neighborhood, streets she says are rough, and would tell Jamar to steer clear. Carl and Darlene would constantly call their sons to see what they were up to, even as the boys became young men. Then, one night in 2016, when Jamar was 23 years old, he didn't come home. Darlene called. He didn't answer. She left a voicemail. I'm probably the last person on the on his phone because I was called like, Jamar, where are you? I'm about to leave for work. I need you to call me as soon as you get this. And I went on about my day at work and around 10 o'clock, my husband called and he was crying. Uh, So I get to the house and there's like about 800 people surrounded by my house. Um, And he met me as I was getting out in the car, and he said that they're saying something happened to Jamar. The police said the Givens should come into the station. That's when they told us that they had identified our son, and he was killed, uh, shot. He didn't suffer. I do know his body was moved from where he was shot at and just thrown in an area like he was a dog or something and left there. It was horrible. 
unimaginable. Um, sorry. <laughs> and he told me that it was him. And they identified him. He had his identification in his pocket and his dental records. It was definitely him. And uh, my head just dropped. I was just in shock. And kind of still in shock, but I'm learning to bear it. It's still very difficult. So. After they told me, and, and we came back home, and then I had to think about um, the coroner had his body, so I had to call them. So then we decided on a funeral home. Still doing this, not even knowing how I was going to pay for all this because I didn't have insurance. So when the funeral director told Darlene about Ohio's victim compensation fund, she was relieved. They applied right away. Months passed. Police charged a man with the murder. They never discovered the motive. Darlene considers her son a victim, but in July of 2016, she got a letter. From the victims of crime stating that they did not pay for it. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, why didn't he? I didn't know what to think. Darlene thought the funeral had already been paid for, not realizing that the process is lengthy and only covers reimbursement. But she hadn't gone to the battles for the funeral and didn't really understand the process. Um, so I opened it. And I read it, and I got to the middle part of it as it was explaining the law. This is how they told you, right? Okay, it says, information we received by the Attorney General's office shows that Jamar Givens was adjudicated delinquent for aggravated robbery at a first-degree felony on October the 8th, 2009. Darlene's application was denied. Unfortunately. The state would not be paying for Jamar's funeral. The reason? That 1982 state law that bars Ohio from giving money to crime victims who have criminal records within the past 10 years. And Jamar had a record. He had been found guilty in juvenile court for his part in a robbery, a record that isn't supposed to follow you into adulthood. But in Jamar's case, it did, meaning his family wouldn't be getting any help. You know, we right now we're leaving from paycheck to paycheck. You know, I mean... Any additional anything is rough. You know, we can't meet it. Carl used to work full-time for General Motors when they still made cars in Cincinnati back in the late 80s. He picks up odd jobs now. Darlene works more than full-time as a certified nursing assistant. So it's been a tough road. She missed work. I just get a Social Security check once a month, you know, and that's nothing. I mean, that that is, you know, and... Her salary's not the greatest either. So you take, like, missing a day, you know, what a day can do to you. You know, that's the difference in making that bill you're supposed to pay. I always knew that in some states, having a record meant you could be denied some forms of public housing or get barred from getting some jobs or lose your right to vote. But I didn't know a criminal record could stop you from getting help if you became the victim of a crime. Ohio attorney Michael Downing has worked with clients like the Givens for decades. We figured he might be able to explain the logic behind the law. Logic has no role in it. The logic is entirely political, in my opinion, in that the legislature does not want to be perceived as giving away money to people who don't deserve it. I think the assumption is that criminals are criminals. It's a moral calculus. Michael told us that after decades in practice, he finally stopped working with crime victims, in part because he was discouraged by the tough restrictions on the Victim Compensation Fund. Some people, when they get these letters, feel that the state is telling them, you don't deserve our help. And, I'm, you know, they're right. <laughs> that that's what the state is telling they're, them. They're right that that's what the state is telling them. When I first learned about Ohio's law, I wanted to know exactly what the state was telling victims and family members and how often people were being denied. 
In 2017, I reached out to the Ohio Attorney General's office, which runs the fund. I asked them for data and documentation about the denials. After almost a year, they finally handed over hundreds of letters along with the original applications. Here's what I found. 552 people were rejected in 2016 for criminal history. That's almost one-fifth of all the denials issued that year. In all of those letters was Darlene. Therefore, while the Attorney General Office sympathized with you for your loss, no reward can be granted on this claim. About a quarter of those denials are families of homicide victims. For the most part, it's mothers and fathers, like the Givens, being told the state would not help them bury their child. For Darlene, Jamar's past had nothing to do with his victimization. Jamar served that time. He moved on. He was not out in the community robbing anyone, harming anyone. He learned his lesson from that. My producer, Kate, and I traveled to the Attorney General's office in Columbus, Ohio, to find out why they were denying so many folks like Carl and Darlene. Hi. Hey. Hi. I'm, I'm Kate. Kate, it's nice to meet you. We sat down with Matt Kanai, who oversees the Victim Compensation Fund, and I got to ask him about it. So, it, you know, in some ways, these rules, what they seem to do, it creates a situation where this office is deciding who counts as a victim and who doesn't. No, I mean, so we don't take the position that it minimizes their victimization in any way. Um, It's important to remember that the compensation program isn't like a charity grant, right? It's a compensation grant. It's an act of grace by the state that says, if you had expenses, we'll pay for some of these expenses. And it doesn't apply to every victim, right? It's not saying you weren't a victim. It's saying that there are only certain types of people and certain types of victimization that we address. Um, And so I, I don't think it's the same as saying you're not a victim. In your opinion, should compensation not be available to people due to previous criminal behavior that just might not at all be related to the later victimization? So, I mean, I can't really speak as to my opinion. I can really only speak to the law. You know, and my understanding is that the purpose of the law, and please understand this law was passed like in 1980. So I was like six years old when this law was passed. You know, a lot of what that comes down to is this feeling of, If you don't respect the law and you break the law, then you don't get the benefit of this other side of the law. So it's kind of like saying, if you don't come with clean hands to the compensation fund, then the fund turns you away. Matt said there would be fewer denials if people with criminal records or their families were told, don't bother applying, you'll be turned down. Ohio is one of seven states with laws restricting people with criminal pasts from getting help. But Ohio's law is one of the most restrictive. It bans anyone with any type of felony from getting compensation, whether the crime was violent or not. Things like a drug possession or failing to pay child support. One of the things that outrages me the most about this is that people with money and power are treated differently in our justice. They're they're not policed the same way. David Singleton is an attorney in Cincinnati. He represented Jamar Givens when he was incarcerated in juvenile detention. White folks and black folks and Latinos, we all commit crimes. But if you are white and privileged, you're not going to be subject to the same police involvement. You're not going to be policed the same way. And that's just not fair that we're going to deny people when they are victims of crime compensation particularly in Jamar's case where his adjudication was juvenile. Juvenile records are supposed to be sealed to protect kids from adult consequences. And in fact, we couldn't pull Jamar's record to verify all the details about his crime. But the victim fund in Ohio could, and they used it to deny Darlene and Carl compensation. In Ohio, a juvenile criminal past can follow you into death. Kate and I drive a few hours north of Cincinnati to Cleveland, where Antonio Mason lives with his family. To get into his home, we walked up a narrow ramp connecting his house to the street. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. Don't order anything? 
Antonio welcomed us in. We sat on the couch. He was in his wheelchair. A drunk driver was doing 103 miles an hour and ran to my car from the back and sent it up a pole. And and what are the results um, of the accident? Um, Well, he got 12 years. I got paralyzed from the chest down. So he got the better end of it. Antonio is remarkably grounded, not optimistic and sunny, but honest and clear about what it takes for him to live every day. When the accident happened, it was at the beginning of the fall semester of his sophomore year of college. He was a starting guard on the Cuyahoga Community College men's basketball team and was studying to be a gym teacher. Just going to school, trying to live, trying to make it a better way. And after, he was in rehab, relearning. Everything, how to put my socks on to getting washing myself up, to turning in the bed, to turning side to side. It was crazy, everything. Antonio also needed financial help to make his house and car wheelchair accessible. He applied to the Victim Compensation Fund for help. Were you hopeful when you had first applied that you were going to get some help from the state? Oh, I just knew I was. I was going to get some type of help. You know, the incident, I was paralyzed. I hadn't been in trouble as an adult, period. They always said that your juvenile record is sealed. They can't use it against you as an adult. And yet they still found a way to use something that happened when I was a juvenile. The state denied Antonio's application because he'd been in trouble when he was a kid. He had a couple of charges, one for drug possession and another for trafficking. But he says he had moved on. It pretty much was like basketball, basketball, basketball. So as long as you stayed in the gym, you stayed out of trouble. You know, that was pretty much it. You stay in the gym, you stay out of trouble. The gym is pretty far off for him now. And he faces a constant pressure. Uh, A ton of them, you know. It's always bills, always piled on and keep coming. Bills for his health care and the new handicap-adjusted car he just got. He's trying to save up for a wheelchair-accessible home but he only gets about $750 a month for disability. Most people in his position can turn to the Ohio Victim Compensation Fund, which awards victims up to $50,000. But Antonio got nothing. It's like, all right, at that age, I'm not allowed to buy tobacco. I'm not allowed to drink liquor, or I'm not allowed to do any other things, but I'm allowed to get something that'll haunt me for the rest of my life on my record. It's so unfair. That's so unfair. The Ohio Crime Victims Fund closed out with a $15 million surplus. That's how much leftover money they had. So they have a lot of money. Um, They're just not giving it out. Um, I don't know what to say there. What the hell? I don't know what's... And they say that we're the criminals. Antonio was surprised that the fund had so much money left over, millions of dollars a year, for at least the last 10 years. But there's something else I found that didn't surprise him as much. In the forums where people noted the victim's race, we found that the majority of those people, 61%, who were turned down for having a record, were black. I took that information to Matt Kanai at the Ohio Attorney General's office. He's the lawyer we met earlier who oversees the Victim Compensation Fund. I asked him a straightforward question. Why are Black people hurt the most by this law? My reaction to that is that I don't necessarily find that surprising. Um, There were analysis of the 2010 census data that suggested that African Americans were sort of disproportionately incarcerated at a rate about six times the average for white Americans. Okay, so Matt says it's not surprising to him that black victims are disproportionately affected. And he says the attorney general first became concerned about this law about three years ago, after he was approached by family members of murder victims who were denied because they had criminal histories. I asked Matt about Antonio's case and why a paralyzed car accident victim would be denied. I think it would be hard-pressed to find any law that is universally applied in such a way that every person in society agrees that it never has an unjust conclusion. So Matt's been saying this is the law. We don't have a choice. We have to follow it. But in fact, they do have a choice in some cases. Because under the law, the attorney general's office is allowed to turn down people for crimes they were never convicted of. They can decide maybe the person should have been found guilty but got away with it. 
In 2016, they did that 24 times. The standard um, reason why that exists is because that there are people who are sort of obviously guilty of a crime, but for whatever reason, they're not convicted. Matt Shaughnessy is a former police officer and firefighter who now works as an attorney who helps people file victim compensation claims. He says he deals with this type of thing a lot. And uh, it's a very frustrating thing because it's thin evidence. He told me something else, something really surprising. He said that sometimes the AG's office is digging up old accusations that were never even prosecuted. Oftentimes, a prosecutor's already made a decision not to charge or to drop the charges, not to pursue it because there's not enough evidence there. Yet the attorney general turns around and reads a police report and says, oh, denied. We are entitled to look at the evidence and say, no, you obviously committed this felony offense, and so we're not going to pay. So what that really protects you against are the cases where you do have good, solid evidence of an offense, um, and you know, you're just kind of not letting the person slip by because they didn't ultimately get prosecuted and convicted. As a criminal justice reporter, I often hear that the system is about getting justice for victims. But not all victims are treated equally. About a month ago, while we were finishing this story, Republican Attorney General Mike DeWine announced a plan to loosen some of the restrictions. He's running for governor, and he asked state lawmakers to allow people with criminal histories to qualify if they're applying on behalf of a victim who is a minor. He also asked to reduce how far back a person's criminal past is examined, from 10 years to five. The bill's been introduced, but no word on whether it will become law. Since Jamar Givens' family was disqualified, his parents, Carl and Darlene, didn't get that help and have gone into debt. They've started to get collection notices for funeral expenses. I asked Darlene what it would have meant if Ohio had helped them. Just it would have been comforting to know that the government or whoever run these things cares. But from what I got of it, I was just, you know, he's just another victim or the type of victim they're looking for, put it that way. Even through death, he's victimized. The Marshall Project's Alicia Santo brought us that story. It was produced by Kate Osborne, with data analysis from Reveal's Michael Corey. Alicia reviewed victim compensation funds across the country and found that every year, hundreds of thousands of victims apply to state funds, which paid out more than $348 million in 2016. But as Alicia mentioned, seven states, like Ohio, have some sort of ban in place for people with a criminal past. Our next story takes us to North Carolina, where a program that's supposed to help victims of drug addiction instead uses them as free labor. There was no real structured recovery. The only recovery that we got was work your tail off. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Our next story takes us to a busy cafe, 
where a man named Ian Hayes is talking to Reveal reporters Amy Julia Harris and Shoshana Walter. Oh, and feel free to have as much of this as you want. You've got to try it. No, no, I don't. Oh, you are. Okay. Over fries and grilled cheese sandwiches, they talk about what happened at a drug rehab outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Ian was a client there when he was struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. Afterwards, he actually went to work there full-time. Any questions you have, I got you. Like I said, I know where all the bodies are buried, for Christ's sake. And he has some secrets to tell about the program called Recovery Connections Community. Ian is 44 years old, but walks and talks with the swagger of a much younger man. He prides himself on always telling it like it is, no matter the consequences. He's battled with chronic addiction most of his life. Am I clean and sober? Most of the time, but not always. So I'm going to keep it real. Recovery Connections is free and opens its doors to people like Ian who need help. People are dead under their rope. They're desperate. They need to get somewhere. They can't go back to the house because, you know, the wife kicked them out, the mom or whatever. They got nowhere to go. This program is for people that really don't have any options. And that's the catch. While Recovery Connections is free, there's some ground rules for everyone in the program. They get housing and food, and in exchange, they have to work full-time jobs at local businesses. You're going to work, 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 and... And Recovery Connections keeps all their pay. That's how the program works. That's how it's funded, is by the residents working, and the money that's made on the jobs goes back into the program. But over time, Ian began to doubt where the money was going. The program's founder, Jennifer Warren, was always talking about money. Y'all need to make some money, you know, money, 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 money. And I'm just like, and that's kind of where I was like, you know what, I, that's where I was starting to get pissed off. Ian says Jennifer demanded that people work around the clock, 16 hours or more every day. The more they worked, the more money they brought in. But Ian says instead of going to the program, he saw money going somewhere else, into Jennifer's pockets. Ian grew so disillusioned that he quit his job there. Amy Julia and Shoshana Walter are here with me in the studio to talk about what they found. Hello, ladies. Hi, Al. Hey, Al. Shoshana, can you start off by telling me, how is this program set up and what happens to the people who take part in it? Well, it's a two-year-long program. They basically spend the majority of their time working in these contract jobs at care homes. Um, They don't get paid. All the money goes to the rehab program. And they work more than 16 hours per day as caregivers for elderly, disabled, and mentally ill patients. They're changing their diapers. uh, They're bathing them. They're sometimes dispensing medications, helping to feed them. And they don't really get much training, if any training at all, in most of these jobs. So, Amy, Julia, how does this help them kick their drug habit? What they're told initially when they get into the program is that this structure and work is going to be good for them. It's going to keep their mind off drugs. Idle hands are bad. Work is supposed to help them. But when they're working in these facilities, the facilities are often awash in drugs. And like Shoshana mentioned, some of these recovering drug addicts are actually tasked with dispensing narcotics and opiates. And things went wrong all the time. So people told us that on the job, Uh, Drug thefts were common. People would steal prescription painkillers and snort them, um, often if they were tasked with dispensing drugs, which they also weren't allowed to do. You're supposed to have a special state certification to do that. Um, They would take drugs meant for the patients and take them for themselves. And uh, we actually talked to Ian, who you heard from earlier, who got the inside scoop on some of this. So the residents were going in the sharps containers and taking the little empty residual plastic containers of morphine and squeezing them all into one cup to accumulate enough to get high. So what he's talking about right there is the Sharps containers are the medical waste, uh, sort of the garbage cans for a lot of this. And people would go in there and just steal the residual morphine. Um, Another thing that was pretty common was that people would uh, steal fentanyl pain patches, which are... You know, the patch is meant for people in chronic pain, and they slowly release painkillers that they would just take those off of the residents for themselves. They were taking drugs off the residents that had patches on. They would take their patches off them and then suck the fentanyl out or do something to get it. Yeah. A couple of women did that. Did they get kicked out? Or? No, you don't get kicked out for relapsing. We actually found that for most people who go through this program, 
it doesn't really help them at all. I mean, most people don't make it to the two-year mark. So, Shoshana, why would people who are struggling with addiction work with vulnerable people in assisted living facilities that are full of drugs? That just doesn't make a lot of sense. Basically, the adult care homes contract with Recovery Connections as if they were kind of like a staffing agency. And it's cheap. They don't have to pay workers' compensation. They don't have to pay insurance. They don't have to pay overtime. Some of the facilities are only paying minimum wage for the Recovery Connections workers, which is about $7.25 an hour. So it's a cheap source of labor for them. What kind of facilities would take these people? Well, we wanted to know that, too. So we actually went um, to one of these facilities. This is back in December. It's called Candler Living Center. We went there around 9 o'clock at night. It was super dark. Uh, it, there were trees all over the place. It was kind of secluded in this wooded rural area. And in the parking lot, we actually found a Recovery Connections worker, and we followed him inside through this kind of flimsy wooden door, totally unsecured. We walked down this dimly lit hallway into this kind of cafeteria area. Um, There were people everywhere. It was totally chaotic. There was this loud radio going, um, people milling around, pacing back and forth. And to the right of us, there was this open office room where all the meds were being held, Um, you know, prescription painkillers and all sorts of medications. So opioids would be in there? Opioids would be in there, absolutely. And people were just running in and out, you know. There were residents running in and out of there, staff members. No one really asking who we were or what we were doing there. Amy, Julia, did you guys get a chance to talk to any of the companies that own these homes? Yeah, we talked to a lot of them. And uh, one of them, the company that owns Candler Living, had said that they contract with the recovery center because they're cheap, they're a reliable source of labor. And they said that they thought they were doing a good thing, that they were giving uh, these people struggling with addiction a chance to gain job experience. What they said, though, was that they've never had any problems with these rehab workers whatsoever, which is kind of surprising because when we talk to a lot of the rehab workers and former employees at these facilities, they've said that this whole arrangement was a bad idea. There were drug thefts. A thing that we did not touch upon was there were a lot of allegations of sexual assault as well. There were some really serious cases, seven cases that we had identified where these rehab workers were accused of sexually assaulting patients at the care homes. Tell me more about that. What did you learn about the assaults and what happened? Well, we heard about these assaults from employees at these care homes, and many of them were so concerned because none of the incidents, they said, had ever been reported to authorities, which is required under law. So some of the allegations were very serious. Um, There was one rehab worker who was accused of sexually assaulting a disabled patient in the shower. It was never reported, never investigated. The home did actually institute a policy preventing rehab workers from bathing female patients. But as far as we know, that rehab worker is still working in the care homes. That's horrifying. Uh, Let's get back to the rehab itself. How do people with addictions end up in a place like this? We actually found a lot of participants at Recovery Connections were court-ordered there as part of their probation. You know, a judge will say, okay, I'm not going to send you to prison, but I require you to get treatment or go to rehab for your drug problem. There are a lot of rehabs like this all over the country that advertise themselves as free and specifically cater to people who don't have any money and don't have any insurance and therefore don't really have any place to turn. Also, a lot of um, social workers at state-funded psych facilities, rehab centers, detox facilities send people to Recovery Connections as well. We talked to one guy named Ryan Bailey, who was ordered by a judge to complete treatment out of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, He had a charge of domestic violence for pushing his stepfather during an argument related to his heroin addiction. Um, He had some driving-related charges from his heroin addiction. And so he ended up at Recovery Connections and realized it was not at all the treatment that he needed to overcome that. And there was no real structured recovery. The only recovery that we got was work your tail off, wake up, 
go to work, do everything they tell you to, or they'll put you on the move, put you on punishment, take what little bit of privileges or freedoms that you have from you, keep you working, you know, 18, 20 hours a day, like every day of the week. So people are working these crazy long days. Amy Julia, walk me through what a day is like in one of these rehab centers. It's incredibly structured. So uh, people have told us that they wake up at 6 a.m. and they're going to work at the assisted living facilities. So they're working double shifts, usually 16 hours a day. That's common. After that, when they're back at the rehab facility, as Ryan was describing, if they're put on the move, that means that they always have to be working. So that's um, that can be cleaning up around the house. People told us that they had very strict rules and sort of these odd punishments where they would have to cut the front lawn with a pair of scissors or scrub the baseboards of the home with a baby toothbrush. And they would have to do this for hours and hours on end. And this was ostensibly to help keep their mind off of their addictions. But we talked to a lot of people that said it was about control. It was about sort of breaking them down. That sounds really cult-like to me. Yeah. What a lot of people have said was that the most cult-like part of this was actually these therapy groups that they had that would happen once a week. Yeah, they break you down and then don't even bother to build you up. It's pretty much just tearing you down and tearing your self-esteem down in order to get what they want out of you. And people had said that that was about all of the therapy they got. And what the rehab said was, oh, this was supposed to be an exercise that would sort of bring their flaws front and center and help them confront this and overcome it. But what people said was it was incredibly abusive. Um, It would break them down. And again, this was all about control. I've been in therapy, and that doesn't sound anything like therapy to me. So what happened to Ryan? Well, he ended up um, fleeing the program. He became homeless for a while. He relapsed. He found out that as a result of all this, he violated his probation. So he actually currently has a warrant from Cleveland for his arrest. And as a result, he's been kind of on the run ever since. I mean, he has a hard time getting a job. He kind of has to stay lay low and he can't get a driver's license. So it's really affected his life uh, for the worse. I can't even go back to Ohio or they'll arrest me. I mean, I wouldn't go back and do that again if I had to. I would almost just rather take my chances on the street. It hasn't worked out for Ryan, but as we'll hear, the program worked out pretty well for the woman who's behind this whole scheme. She turned the rehab into her own personal empire, complete with a collection of exotic animals. Eleven llamas, eight donkeys, plus sheep, goats, Arctic fox. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. I'm talking to Reveal reporters Amy Julia Harris and Shoshana Walter about their story, looking at Recovery Connections community outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Now, it bills itself as a drug rehab program, but the therapy consists of sending clients to work 16 hours a day as caregivers at assisted living facilities. And the workers never saw the money they made. A woman named Jennifer Warren set up the program and seemed to profit off of it. So, Amy Julia, tell me more about this woman. What's she all about? She's a really interesting character. Um, So she herself uh, struggled with addiction. She was getting her Ph.D. in clinical psychology. That's when she got hooked on crack cocaine. She dropped out. She went to this rehab program in North Carolina that had this similar model. It was a work-based rehab. It was free, but she had to turn over all of her pay to the rehab Basically, uh, she was in this rehab program, met some other people, and she decided to start a rehab of her own, and it was called Recovery Ventures. So she started this rehab program, but soon it sort of began to go off the rails for her. She uh, got into some ethical problems. She was 
forcing people in her program to babysit her kids and color coordinate her closet and take care of her animals and was really blurring the line between helping the recovering drug addicts and helping herself. Because she was in part of this nonprofit rehab program, she would have them solicit donations, and some of them ended up going to her rather than to program participants. Um, And then sort of the final straw for all of this was when she started sleeping with one of her rehab participants who she was counseling. And that's obviously a huge ethical breach Um, Some of her colleagues were trying to intervene and said, you're jeopardizing your license. This is career suicide. What are you doing? And she held firm and said, I love him. What am I supposed to do? She continued all of this. And that was kind of the final straw. She ended up getting fired. She lost her therapy license. She got into a lot of trouble. And then she ended up just starting a new program called Recovery Connections that was basically an identical version of her previous program, but this time she didn't have to answer to anyone. She was in charge. So Shoshana, she starts this new place, but does she continue the same behavior? Yes. um, The same exact thing, although this time she's running an unlicensed program, so there's no one really to hold her accountable. And there's another thing that we haven't told you about yet, which is her quote-unquote animal therapy program. Jennifer has like a, uh, well... She's got a thing for animal, collecting animals. She likes exotic animals. That's Ian Hayes again. He worked at the facility and was also a patient. He says that Jennifer Warren has an extensive exotic animal collection. They're basically like her pets. She uses the program to buy the animals and makes participants take care of them. So what type of animals are we talking about? Like, like how many are we talking? There were hundreds. She keeps them at her house in Black Mountain, North Carolina. People have told us that her entire bedroom was full of cages of exotic birds, like toucans and parakeets and other tropical birds. And then we asked Ian this question, like, how many animals are they? And here he is going through all of them. Probably 50. There's probably like... No, well, 50, you know, like three horses plus 11 llamas plus seven dogs plus eight donkeys plus, you know, sheep, goats, Arctic fox. An Arctic fox? Yeah, two of them. Kikajous. I don't even know what a kikajou is. Some cute but violent looking monkey. I hate monkeys. No, 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 no. Okay. 11 llamas? 11 llamas. Like, no. What we also heard that was really sad is that some participants had to bury the llamas. Some of the llamas died. So part of their duties after they're working at the assisted living facilities, they come home and they have to bury a dead llama. Uh, It was very traumatic. So what happened with Ian? Yeah, Ian had um, a rough time. He ended up going to the rehab center in 2014. He stayed for 16 months. He sort of saw things uh, breaking down. He questioned the way the money was being spent. He would get into arguments with Jennifer over the way she was spending program funds on herself. Um, He ultimately ended up leaving on not good terms. And because he struggles with addiction his entire life, he ended up relapsing. He was in a really dark place. Um, And after a couple of months, he actually ended up going back to the program as a participant, no longer as an administrator. So he was going through the program, working 16-hour days at the assisted living facilities. Um, He did that for a couple of months, and he finally realized nothing was going to change. This program was not going to work for him, and it wasn't working for some other people as well. So he ended up leaving. So how is she able to get away with this? I mean, how can she just keep doing the same thing over and over? It is amazing. Um, There have been at least four state agencies that have investigated her, that have received so many, like dozens upon dozens of complaints about her. And she's managed to basically get out of trouble each and every single time. So what does Warren say about all this? I mean, how does she defend herself? I think overall, she has sort of said that she's providing a valuable service, that there's not enough affordable treatment programs anywhere in the country, that it's better for people struggling with addiction to get some sort of rehab help than go into prison. And she sort of made this point to 
uh, probation officers and courts all over the state. So is there an alternative? You know, people generally feel like doing work and doing a good job at the work gives them a sense of self-esteem. But there are programs that do that without working them excessive number of hours, depriving them of sleep, and programs that also at the same time provide them with actual treatment for their addictions, where they might take classes, where they might actually have therapy or counseling. Um, So I think there's that part of it. And also, you know, if a program is licensed, uh, then there's some oversight and there's someone who can say, this is abusive and this must stop. Since we first came out with this story back in May, a lot has happened. Shoshana, can you bring us up to date? Well, right off the bat, Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina called the rehab a horrific scheme that preys on people at their lowest. And he ordered a statewide crackdown that involves at least 10 criminal and regulatory investigations into the program. They're looking at elder abuse, at fraud, and other problems. So is the program still open? The program is still open while the investigation is ongoing, but people on probation are no longer allowed to go there. The state probation department pulled them out. State social workers are no longer allowed to send people there. And several of the care homes that were using the workers have canceled their contracts with the program. We have heard, though, that Recovery Connections is still sending people to work at some of the homes. So we're going to keep track of what happens. That's Reveal's Shoshana Walter, along with Amy Julia Harris. Since they first started reporting on this story, they've received dozens of tips about other abusive work-based rehabs all over the country. They've created a reporting network where they're sharing these tips with local newsrooms and journalists. So far, more than 100 reporters have signed up. If you're interested in joining, go to revealnews.org network. Andy Donahue edited our story on rehab rackets in North Carolina. Thanks to Alicia Santo, Kirsten Danis, and Tom Mayer of The Marshall Project for collaborating on our story about victim compensation funds. It was produced by Kate Osborne and edited by our executive producer, Kevin Sullivan, with help from Cheryl Duvall. And senior data editor Michael Corey did the data analysis. Our production manager is Moende Enahosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Catherine Raimondo. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence and Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Ledson, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>